Okay, ladies, let's get started um, and let's just open in prayer this morning. So, Father, we do just come to you and thank you for this season and uh, that it is Christmas, um, Christ in Christmas. And we pray that we never forget that and just turn our minds toward you and um, all that you have waiting in store for us. In your name, amen. And that really is what we're talking about today is is the end um, from our lesson and that, that we've got to learn to persevere um, and be filled with hope because there is something better in store for us. And the fun thing about um, us not really having a class this week is I'm not bound by anyone needing to pick up their children or by that menacing little clock at the back that usually just... Um, plays havoc with me when I look up. So this may go really long. I'm just going to tell you now, or I, it will probably go longer than normal because I have all the freedom in the world. So I'm real excited about that. But um, that's what we're looking at. Very last lesson, lesson 12. And um, I've titled this The Never Ending Story. When my kids were little, there was a movie out um, that had come out right about the time they were, you know, very early preschoolers. And it was called The Never Ending Story. It was actually kind of an odd um, film when you look at it and think about it. Um, more the phantasmic, um, I don't really know if you'd say science fiction even, because it's really not the science fiction, but it was a phantasmical, um, you know, flying animals and all kinds of things. But the whole thing, uh, the point of the movie was that this story never ended. Um, and a, a little boy finds a book in an attic and what you don't realize is that he's part of the story. That's the reason the story can never end because he never understood it. He wanted it to be like a book that you read it and it has an end and it says the end. And it, that just didn't happen because he was part of a living part of the story of this book. And I think that like film and like other great written anthologies today, we all have this um, desire for the story not to end, surprisingly, instead of to end. That's what has spawned the birth of these trilogies like um, Lord of the Rings, um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Harry Potter, hugely popular Harry Potter series, and now, if you have a teenage girl, the Twilight series. And it's like this breathless waiting for the next one to come out. Even if they've read the book, I mean, like, oh, can't wait. Want the story to go on and on, don't want it to end. Well, God knew that inside each of us, um, we would have this desire to hear the rest of the story, whatever it was. And so I think what he began beautifully in Genesis in the garden, he shows the culmination of in the book of Revelation, the end of his book. Um, what we got to get a, get a grasp on and grapple with is that the world as we know it, this world, it will, it does in fact have a finite ending. It will end. Sadly, many people today believe that that end, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, and there's a new movie out called 2012. I need to go see it because it's about the end. And some Mayan culture's interpreta interpretation, guess that's a big word, interpretation of the end. And uh, so continually through, through filmmakers, through storytellers, there's this reach for it. And the people believing that there will be an end. But 
as believers in Jesus Christ, we know there's a lo whole lot more to the story. Um, and this study of end times or things happening at the end in, in biblical circles is called eschatology or in the intellectual circles, I guess. And I only wish today we had more time to talk about it fully and really go through all the aspects of what will happen, what is coming, so we could express all that to you. But there's, again, sadly, even though you're not here and I could go on and on, I can't go on and on. Well, there's not enough time even in my day today for me to sit here and go on and tell you all that. But the good news is this Bible study has been going on long enough that we've actually delved in specifically to those topics. Um, we have taught a whole year on the book of Revelation where much of end times is discussed. We've actually done um, a year on the book of Daniel, um, which is the Old Testament pairing. It is the prophecy given, much of which has been fulfilled, but much which has yet to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And so we've taught on both of those. And I would suggest if you are interested in this topic and you want to know more, you want to know what the rapture is, you want to know if you're going to be left here, behind, and etc. If you want to know the answers to those questions, you want to know about the Antichrist, who is he, then I suggest you go online to the Women's Ministry website and do a search on Daniel or Revelation. Pull those up and listen to those. They'll be a great, they'll give you great insight. But today, what we're going to focus on, again, is the end of God's story as we know it, and one particular sliver, one slice of that story. The Bible, from beginning to end, is God's grand story of what? Of redemption. That's the story. That's what this whole thing is about, the story of redemption. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden, and what we know is that there was the original sin, and because of that, blood had to be shed, and their sin had to be covered over. That was the original. This then evolved into an elaborate system of payment for sin for the nation of Israel with sacrifices and a sacrifice for this and for that and a lot of blood being shed um, in the nation of Israel, and then culminating in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And him shedding his blood once for all. He was, is called the last Adam because he did what the first Adam could never do and put an end um, to the atonement that was required. So in your lessons this week, um, lesson 12, you would have seen that we are living in a period that Bible scholars call, it's, a, it's the gap time. There was the first coming of Jesus all of the Old Testament led up to the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Then what we know from Scripture is there will be a final coming, a second and final coming of Jesus. But we're living in the middle, in the gap. And this gap period has become known as the church age. It's the time that we are living in. And so what I'm going to do today is just take you to the end of the story. As I mentioned, I'm going to use a lot of Revelation 21 and 22 and some other stuff too. But what we're going to focus on specifically, because I can't cover it all, is the picture that you see there of heaven. What is absent? What's not going to be there? What is present? What we will find there? And what we should be doing to prepare for it? Those are the three things. So I've told you, um, talked before, and, and in, again, in prior years of teaching, we spent a lot of time talking about a book Randy Alcorn has written on this very subject called, simply enough, 
heaven, the book heaven. And in this book, he gives a chart, lots of them, lots of great things. And I, we don't, I'm not going to go over the chart, but what he does is he compares what many people perceive um, is in heaven, what they assume about heaven from what we've heard, seen, etc. And then he pairs it next to what the Bible actually says about heaven. And because we're not going to visually see that today, what I'm going to do is just summarize the biblical portion and tell you, some things that might surprise you about what we're going to find in heaven. And here's what it says. We will be living on a new earth. But get the terminology, earth. We live on earth now. So what that says is there's something, from, there will be many things familiar about it. It will just be renewed. It will be new, made new. We will be living in resurrected bodies. So there will be some recognition because we know it will not be the same body we have, but we are raised to a new body, given a body that will never wear out. That, so I, I think folks will recognize us. Um, we will be home. This will be our home. Here, where we are, is not our home. I love it. If you read The Journey today, which is December 14th, you will um, see that the guy that wrote the journey, I didn't know him, so I can't even remember his name now, but he talked about the fact that we are aliens and strangers on this earth. And that is right. This isn't our home. We shouldn't be too comfortable here. Where we are going, the new earth will be our home. That will be heaven for us. So it will, again, have some comforts of home because, again, it will be familiar. It will retain the good, but only there will be the best. And I struggle with that in this life. I struggle between good and better and best. And we won't have to worry about that anymore. We will have only the best. We will still live in time and space. Some people think that that um, that infinity, that term infinity, means there's just no you're not there's no time or space anymore. But that there will be. There still will be. Um, it will be dynamic, not boring, not static. It's not. We don't just get there and it's the end. No, it's going to go on forever. I know I can't wrap my head around that. I know you can't either. I just know that's what the Bible says it's going to be. There will be both old and new. We will have God to worship and serve all the time. We will have a universe to rule. And there are actually other um, religions and cults who have theories of, of planets to rule, etc., and things. Well, guess what? The Bible says we really, we are given that job. And uh, we will do that. We'll have work to accomplish. We'll have friends to enjoy. We'll have learning, continued learning and discovery. Um, we will have the presence of everything we desire that's perfect and nothing that we don't. So that's a lot of stuff to be there. And if that's going to be there, then what is not going to be there? And that's where we're going to start today. So the first thing we're going to look at is what is absent. And I want to go to Revelation 21. In the end of that chapter, starting in verse 22, to talk about that. And I want to talk about God's temple because it's absent. There is no temple. And you have to understand to the um, John who wrote the book of Revelation and to the new believers who the majority of were Jewish converts at the po this point in church history in the uh, first century of believers the fact that there would be no temple was absolutely shocking, mind-boggling, because you see, the temple was the center of everything. It was the center of the city, the center of Jerusalem, the center of all, all um, 
It meant everything. It symbolized God's presence. And God had set that up, of course, from the beginning, all the way back to when the Israelites were in the desert and had a, a, a portable tent that they set up um, until he created the, the copy of the temple in heaven when he set it up on earth and laid out the plans and the designs. But you know what? There's not going to be one. In heaven, sin is no longer a barrier to God's presence. And so we're going to see him. We're going to fellowship with him face to face. Um, we, we're told in Scripture in the New Testament that we see now dimly, but then we will see clearly face to face. And that's speaking of God himself. And the things that seem veiled to us and our mysteries and that we don't know, it will all be crystal clear. Um, I think of it even right here of, uh, you know, again, to the early church believer, it would have been the temple in Jerusalem. To us, it's our churches here, our brand new church right here. It won't be necessary. We won't be going to church. We will be the church. And we know believers are supposed to be the church right here. But in heaven, we will be literally, truly, really the church. No need for a physical structure anymore. Um, we'll be the church. So no, no temple. There also light um, is something that will be absent. And this is interesting. Light in scripture represents everything that is good, pure, true, holy, reliable. It is the truth. Um, and light, as we all know, exposes. It exposes or reveals whatever is there. If you walk into a dark room and flip on the light, you see the the little scurrying of the bugs or, or maybe there was a mouse. And when light comes on, those things run uh, because they've been exposed. Um, I love First John 1, 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Well, that tells you everything. God is light. So we don't need other light. When we think of it, we think of what we know of light on this earth. And on this earth, um, as we know it, we're illuminated. Our earth is illuminated by the sun, the moon, the stars. But I don't know. Scripture doesn't. Some people, um, some scholars actually say there won't be a sun, moon, and stars. Well, I'd have to be real careful about that because I can't find that in Scripture. It doesn't say there won't be, but it says there will be no need for those things. Why? Because God is light marvelous, radiant, like we can't envision or know or understand. God's glory will outshine everything and provide all we need. This is how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. No longer, you see, he says it exactly as we won't need it. No longer will you need the sun, the moon, or the moon to give you light. For the Lord God will be your everlasting light and he will be your glory. The sun will never set well, he says the sun will never set, so that's interesting, whether it's metaphorical or literal. Um, the moon will not go down. Okay, so that would mean the sun and the moon, and, the, I mean, and they are both up there at the same time. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Wow. And then night, because if you have light, then you have, we have night. Throughout scripture, nighttime or darkness symbolizes death, sin, sorrow, and what we know is in heaven or on the new earth, in our home, there, these things are banished forever. They're done away with, put away, and there, there is no more darkness. The city's secure. And so its gates, uh, uh, in um, the first century, for first century believers, cities were protected by gates. It, 
and even throughout really all of history that's been a fortifying cities has been a very important symbolic thing and so um, it's not so much so to us now but to an ancient city very critical and so this writing that the gates of heaven will never be shut for there will be no more night there and that there'll be no need to protect yourself from something an invader an intruder is an amazing thing it's again it's picturing security and the fact that um, heaven our new home the new earth will only be inhabited by righteous people nothing else um, Ephesians 5 8 for you who were once darkness are now the light uh, are, are light in the Lord so live as children of light and that's us. There's no need to worry here. Um, no need to have security systems. No need for any of that. God in all creation is going to be supremely and serenely at rest from evil. And then that takes us to the fourth thing that won't be there, and that's anything impure. And I've already alluded to that. The gates always being open wide and uh, um, again, think of your home, never needing a lock, never needing a security system. That's the picture here. Not, you don't think of a gate, but you think, what? No security system? No lock on my door? That's right. Go, th this will be uh, the, the case because there will be nothing impure. And I think when I think of impurity, I think of two things. I think of things, impure things, and impure people, and neither will be there. Scripture says nothing impure will enter it. So that means literally nothing. And the things in Scripture that were spoken of when, when impure things were mentioned were idolatrous, graven images, things that people would set up to worship and look around you. Think of all the things we worship here, our materialism, our buildings, our cars, our clothes, our coat, our whatever. Um, none of that will be there. Or anything that's defiled, anything, item, um, that's been defiled in any way. I think we've so long lived all of our lives, of course, in a world that's been corrupted by sin, that I can't even begin to imagine or fathom what this will be like. But what I do know is you want to talk about freedom? This is freedom. Freedom from the bondage of things that enslave us, either in our mind due to worry or, or um, trying to free ourselves of things. Um, there will be no fear because there will be nothing to be afraid of. And then there won't be impure people. Um, no one who does anything that's shameful or deceitful will be in the city. And um, earlier in chapter 21, he goes through a list of the people that will be barred. Murderers, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, serious transgressors. Now, if you're sitting here in your chair and you're squirming at this list because your name, like mine, could be attached to one of these, then i got to remind you again, there's no need to worry. Because all who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation to cover over the sin in their life, whatever it is, and we know every, there's no sliding scale in God's um, design, that every level playing field, every single one of us, all have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. Every one of us. It might, in our mind, my sin might be a lot more grievous than your sin, but the fact of the matter is, in God's eyes, we are all the same, sinners. But if you have put 
recognized that and said, I cannot save myself. I need a savior. I need Jesus Christ to cover over. I believe he is the son of God and came to pay the price for my sin. I believe that. And I ask him in my heart to take my sin and make it clean. If you have done that, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And everyone whose name is written there will be the only people in heaven or on the new earth. And so that alone will make us all sacred. You will be a saint. You are a saint now if you've trusted Christ, but you will be living a sacred life, a saintly life, unlike we can be living now. So, you know, the question I think is, have you ever done something in your life that is shameful or embarrassing or deceitful? Well, as you know, I have. And what I know to be true is most every one of you sitting out here has done the same. And that's exactly why I am so thankful that the basis of my place in heaven um, will be not on me, but totally on my acceptance of the blood of Jesus Christ for my sin, the confession of it and the reception of it, um, and for his help to live my life as I should now going forward. So what does God expect? Once we've made that decision and received him, he expects us to pick ourselves up, um, not pick ourselves up, but, but be allowed to be picked up and go on, um, to press on, he says in scripture, press forward, go on towards the goal, the prize. And what is the goal and the prize? It's heaven. It's where we're going. That's the goal. So after we confess our sin, we should gather ourselves up and be resolute in our determination to resist the enemy in that area in the next time, whenever it comes again, to fight against sin with everything we have and to trust Christ alone as the provision. Every test in your life, every temptation can all be part of the process of God conforming us to his image, the image of Christ. I've got a um, 30-year-old nephew who's an artist. He is a sculptor and a painter, and um, watching him work is just beauty in and of itself. He can take a lump of clay, and I'm not joking. He has these tables set up with just this thrown stuff, thrown clay, and he can begin working with his hands, and beauty unfolds before your very I can't even, I, I'm just stunned to watch it. And yet, what a great picture of God, because you see, he does the same thing. We're the clay, we're told in scripture, and he is busy. He's in the process of molding us and shaping us for heaven. He rolls a little there, he squeezes a little there, he'll pinch off a little over here, um, making us fit, um, making us closer resemble our Savior, Christ. And, uh, and, and sculpting us for our ultimate home. That's what he's in the business. So we've got to thank him for all the hard things, um, for whatever it might be that you're going through right now in your life that seems insurmountable, impassable. I don't know, but I know that he can and does work everything for good. Just like uh, I love the story of Joseph and all the horrible things that happened. But what does he declare in Genesis 50? But this. You, he's speaking to his own brothers, his own flesh and blood, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So let your life be a grand work of art, perfectly suited for the masterpiece ultimately of heaven.
And then what will our new home entail? What is, what is going to be present there? And again, we can, we can go to Revelation, but chapter 22 and the early verses there. There's going to be a river there. And this river reminds us of the original paradise, the Garden of Eden. And what's interesting is when you compare the two, there are similarities, but there are distinct differences. Um, God, again, in this picture is going full circle. He started with the garden and he's going to end. Our whole life will be lived in a garden, in the garden, not, not um, the, the original garden, but the one that is perfect for all, all time. In the original Eden, there were four rivers. In heaven, our home, our new home, there will be one river, the river of life, and it will be pure beyond anything you could imagine, crystal clear. And the reason is because it's not polluted or defiled or impure in any way. And let's just talk a moment about water and what it represents because it's critical and has lots of spiritual applications. River, the water of life. Water is key to life. We know that. We've talked a lot about that. We talk about it, um, i.e. with the Christmas conspiracy, the watermark conspiracy that um, we are trying to do so much for in Africa, drilling water wells and giving them true water so that we can ultimately refer them to the water of life the water from which they'll never thirst again. But let's think about that. Water's key, and the reason why is because it's essential. It's something that the human body is mostly comprised of water. We all need it. You and I know what it's like to be thirsty. I don't know if you've ever worked out. Yesterday was the White Rock Marathon. I guarantee you there were lots of thirsty people there, and there are lots of water stations and water breaks. We manned one. And it's such a great thing to be able to stand there and pass out water to people who are whose bodies literally because of the sweat, 26 miles of sweating, there's nothing there. They need that continuous intake of fluid. And imagine what the original readers thought of this. In the ancient world, they lived in a land where water also was a very precious commodity, so they would have understood this. Water, though, has a lot of spiritual significance. Water symbolizes in Scripture forgiveness. It's life-giving, we already know that, to our physical bodies. But spiritually, it does the same thing. It, <clears throat> we can wash our own body physically and our clothes in water, and we can take dirty things and make them clean. Well, guess what? The same is true of the water of life, the water that Christ offers. It can wash your heart, your spirit clean. Um, it can take what is dirty, defiled by sin that you commit, and literally this water can wash you clean. Um, throughout Scripture, we see that repeatedly the unsaved are offered water of life. I think of Jesus um, in John chapter 4 with the, the woman at the well drawing water. And Jesus said to her, I can give you water that you'll never thirst from again. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? He was speaking of of the spiritual significance, not the physical, but the spiritual. So this river, one single river, is going to reflect Jesus' thirst-quenching, need-satisfying nature. Um, he has always met and been fully capable of meeting your needs and fulfilling your every longing. And that's pictured by the river of life flowing through the center of everything uh, that will comprise our new home. And then there's a tree. Ah, you're saying, oh, that, that nasty little tree. 
Because isn't that what got us to, into trouble in the garden in the first place? And that is true. It, it's true it did. Um, and it will have fruit. This tree, it will have fruit and it will have leaves, just as you would imagine a tree would. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden and think about that. In the Garden of Eden, they had free reign of everything but what? But one tree. And they were prohibited from eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, uh, lest they would forever fall into, um, you know, a, a state that they would need redemption from. So here, the tree is, it is the tree of life. It's abundant. It's freely accessible. All the saints can go up at any time. It continues to produce fruit. It will never shrivel up. Um, it will be wonderful, delicious, and it will be life-giving because, again, life will go on forever. Um, so because of Jesus and the gift that he gave us, we will all be entitled. It will be free reign. It will be unique. Where Adam and Eve were cut off from this tree and then it was guarded by angels, completely the garden was, we will have free access, free reign all the time. And just remember back to what Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly or to the full in John 10, 10. He contrasts what the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they will have life and have it abundantly in full. And then it has leaves, and, and we're told in Revelation 22 that the leaves are for the purpose of healing the nations. And when I read that, I went, well, kind of wait a minute. My first thought is that if sin is eliminated, then why do we need healing? Why would the nations be healing? And I think what John is trying to imply, this is think, so not, don't, I don't know. But I think he's implying that, um, you know, maybe there will be illness on the new earth, except that doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. Um, he could be alluding, alluding to something else. But listen to what it says in Ezekiel. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit ever fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And I don't know, maybe that could just be the picture of continuous. We have been, it will be past tense, continually healed from sin and whatever um, ailment we had here on earth. And for those that struggle with physical ailments or have children with disabilities and ailments, is this not a great picture and a great hope that we will be healed from whatever it is that plagues us? I think that's a beautiful picture. And then we will um, we'll have activity. There are going to be things to do. It's a very busy place, this new home that we're going to. In Genesis 3, a curse was pronounced on all mankind, but what we know is that the curse will no longer be enforced. We will be there to serve, to serve God. Adam and Eve had to leave the original paradise, and then they had to go into labor for their daily bread. They had to work. And here, um, our work won't be for our daily bread because that will, will be provided freely, but we will be serving God and daily and seeing his face and being in perfect fellowship with him. To be able to see God's face suggests intimate relationship. I see my friends. I go to lunch with my friends. I see my husband. I see my kids. I see them face to face because there's intimacy and a personal relationship. And that's what we'll have. No longer will God be ancient of days, that term in scripture, when I have a hard time getting my hands around that, that won't be true. He will be, he'll be right there. Not ancient to me anymore. Not ancient of days. 
he'll be right there living among us. And our, our lives will be, um, our service will all be garnered around worshiping and serving him. Whatever it takes to do that, that's what we'll be doing. I think there could be caretaking responsibilities. I mean, there's fruit, there's trees, there's a lot to be done. Um, just like what was assigned to Adam and Eve in the garden, he assigned them certain responsibilities. I think he's going to do the same thing. I think we're going to all have jobs to do because it's going to be a busy, um, full place with lots going on. And then we will reign. And I mentioned this earlier, this ruling, this reigning. Genesis 1:28. God commissioned Adam to fill the earth and subdue it or to rule over it. And he was asking man to rule the work of his hands. Um, because of Christ and his job, we've, we will regain the original command, the original plan. We'll regain our innocence because of justification. We will gain for the first time immortality because of resurrection, having a resurrected body. And we will regain paradise, uh, the original paradise. We will regain it in an even better. It will be the best paradise, the perfect paradise. And we'll have the right to reign over the creation of it. So I'm not really sure where the saying came from, but it really applies here, I think. And when every um, American bride gets married, one of the things on her wedding day that she's encouraged to have is something old and something new. And it fits the lesson, I think, perfectly because we are the bride of Christ. We're told that throughout Scripture. We, the church, again, any believer, anyone who's trusted Christ are part of the church, and we are then called the bride of Christ. We're waiting for our bridegroom to come and get us and take us to the home he's prepared, just like a groom would for a bride. And in preparation for our new life, this passage it teaches us that we can expect something of the old, but oh, there's so much more in the new to look forward to, to anticipate, to hope for, um, that we have no idea. Just like before you got married, there were things people could tell you, but it you know, you're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I've heard all that. You know, read it in a book somewhere, whatever. And you think you've got a handle on it. You think in theory you understand, but oh, no, no. No, sister, you don't get it. Nothing of your old life will compare to marriage and to what living together with someone else and, and becoming one really means. And that's going to be true here. We'll have something of the old. We'll retain it. But nothing can really prepare us. We're reading about it here, but we can't really grasp it until we are there. So what do we do today? Um, I think we continue to live in a world that's fractured. That's what we do. And we do it um, empowered by Christ. To the best of our ability, we want to live well in this world. We've got to remember our calling as followers of Christ. we got to recognize that we are not citizens of America, uh, the, of the United States. We are not citizens of this earth. We do not belong here. We are aliens. We are strangers. And we've got to keep reminding each other. I forget and I get real comfortable here. And we've got to remind each other this is not where we belong. We've got to demonstrate to those that we come in contact every day we get the opportunity. Whether you're picking your kids up from school, running carpool, going to the grocery store, running to the cleaners. I don't know what all you do. Talking to your cleaning people, working out in the yard, seeing your neighbors, walking your dog. Um, you get an opportunity every day to bring a little taste of heaven 
to the people on this earth, to give them something to look forward to, to show them there is something different, there is something better in store than what we have here. And that takes us to the last thing, what we can do to prepare. Um, and I think that's really spoken of well in Revelation 22, moving on into verses 12 through 15. Dwight L. Moody was an incredible, godly uh, patriarch in, in our generation. And he said that there are some believers living that are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. And really what he was speaking of was actually a phenomenon that was spoken of as well in the New Testament church, in the first century church. He was referring to those folks who, um, who have just quit. They've become so consumed with heaven that they've quit living their life here. And that's not what Jesus commands us to do. Um, we want to continue to look and to know and to recognize, but, but we have a job and a purpose here, and we cannot forget that calling. We can't sell our home and go sit down, um, quit our jobs, and sit and fold our hands and pray all day and, and wait expectantly. That, is, that would be far sh falling far short of what Christ intended and what he calls us to do. He, we're on a mission. We've already talked about that. Go back a few lessons and look it up. We're on a mission here. We are to be fully engaged in this world, but always with our eyes on the next. So how do we do this? Um, you know, Paul spoke to these people in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in that passage, he um, was reprimanding them because a lot of them had done that. They had sold things, they had quit their jobs, and they were sitting around, and they were only causing trouble. And he wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3 to them, and you might spend some time there and just see, but here's what I got out of that. What he said is, sit up, take notice, and be faithful now. God has given you gifts, he's given you new life, and you need to get busy living it. And, um, you know, if we believe that Jesus is coming back soon, and Scripture specifically says he is, as a matter of fact, in Revelation 22, he says it three times, then we need to be always watching and faithful, um, like he encouraged us to do. And again, the picture of the bride, uh, throughout Scripture, you go to the wedding, and the bride's uh, maids and the bride, having the bride always prepared and, and ready. Obviously, in ancient weddings, they it was a surprise, and there wasn't uh, not quite as detailedly planned as we do today, knowing the exact hour and et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes they would they would anticipate. I guess they knew it was coming, but they didn't know exactly when, and so they always had to be ready. This is what it says um, in Matthew twenty four forty two. So be prepared, because you don't know. What day your Lord is coming, you must always be ready. Be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when you least expect it. I think to, to be ready, what does that mean? Okay, practically speaking, okay, okay, I understand that. So what does that mean? How, how do I always be ready, living expectantly? I think that part of that is asking ourselves continually three key questions that are very telling. The first is, how am I using my time here on earth? And I think annually, I encourage you to sit down with some folks that love you, community. You're, if you don't have a community group, then your group here, or your close friends who are believers, that's critical and important, and really look at your schedule. Just lay out a week. What's it look like? What do you spend your time doing? And really ask yourselves, how am I using my time? 
And not to say that you can't do some things that are fun or for rest or for um, whatever, but, but really looking at where do, I, where do I volunteer, how am I using that, um, am I using it as a platform, am I using it, just really assessing your own motives and, and desires. And then what am I doing with my talent that God has given me to serve the Lord? And of course, I hate almost to use that term because when you say talent, I think of like, you know, a Sarah or Anita who lead us in worship and have these incredible voices. And you know what? We all have talent. And maybe your talent is maybe you're the, the best reader to the little kids at Sequoia Elementary. Maybe you make the best lunches. Maybe you are best at cutting out things on service day. I don't know what you do, what your talent is. Maybe you're great with numbers and your talent lies in helping others understand financial aspects. Maybe you're you know, the creator, maybe. So your talent, I don't know what it is. You may not know, but you need to figure it out, understand, and then ask yourself, what am I doing with this gift that God has given me to serve him? And be sure you are not just using it for yourself or for others, but that God is getting some glory. And then the last thing is, where do my treasures or my money, where does that go? That might be the most telling of all. Go back. Um, at the end of the year and sit down and look. Kyle and I, um, in January, we have taken times to go away at the beginning of every year. And uh, the end of January, we go away and we sit down and we reflect back on the prior year. And part of that is looking, looking at um, where our money went, what did we have, what did we do with it, um, and then what did we do with our own, these things, our time, our talent, and what do we want to change for the year to come. Um, and, and, and we just make that a, a part of what we do. And I really encourage you to do that. These answers will tell you if you're more focused on your life here or on the life to come that we're living for. And then the last thing we've got to do is expect, be always living in, ex, in expectation of Christ's return. In Revelation 22, Jesus says it three times. I am coming quickly. He said it in verse 7 and 12 and 20. Now, I don't know about you, but 2,000 plus years later, I'm thinking, really? Quickly? It doesn't seem so quick to me. It seems pretty delayed here. This isn't quick. And uh, Peter tells us, I think, the key to why there is a delay. And it should bring us all hope in this room. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return as some would count slowness. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, but is giving more time for everyone to repent. Isn't that awesome? So if you're sitting here this morning and you have never bent your knee, and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. He's waiting, delaying for you. He's not coming quickly today for you. Or maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's a child. Whomever it is, he is delaying. And that should only give you hope and renewed enthusiasm to go tell them again. Go say it a different way. Go ask them again if they've conti continued to consider uh, the promise that he has. We should be, as believers, calling for Jesus to come so we can go to our new home, but always in light of continuing to seek after those around us who are lost, knowing we don't want to leave any behind. And as Christmas approaches, this is the last thing that we'll do 
not only before Christmas, but of the year 2009. I thought it was very appropriate to end this teaching time today with a great poem by Diane Dunfeld, um, entitled Twas the Night Before Jesus Came. Um, it's a little play, obviously, on the poem The Night Before Christmas, and um, I'm going to read it, and that will be our ending. And so enjoy your holidays. Watch your email box. We, we will um, let you know of things coming and look for us to start again with Service Day in 2010 on uh, January 13th. So twas the night before Jesus came. Twas the night before Jesus came and all through the house. Not a creature was praying. No one in the house. Their Bibles were laying on the shelf without care in hopes that Jesus surely would not come there. The children were dressing to crawl into bed. Not once did they kneel or bow their little heads. And mom was in her rocker with baby on her lap. She was watching the late show while I, I took a nap. When out of the east there arose such a clatter, I sprang to my feet to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. When what to my wondering eyes should appear, but angels proclaiming that Jesus was here. With a light like the sun sending forth a bright ray, I knew in a moment that this must be the day. The light of his face made me cover my head. It was Jesus returning, just like he said. And though I possessed worldly wisdom and wealth, I cried when I saw him in spite of myself. In the book of life which he held in his hand was written the name of every saved man and woman. When he spoke not a word as he searched for my name, when he said, it's not here, my head hung in shame. The people whose names had been written with love he gathered to take to his father above. This would be rapture. With those who were ready he rose without a sound, while all the rest were left standing around. I fell to my knees, but it was too late. I had waited too long and thus sealed my fate. I stood and I cried as they rose out of sight. Oh, if only I had been ready tonight. In the words of this poem, the meaning is clear. The coming of Jesus, it is drawing near. There's only one life, and when the last and when comes the last call, we'll find that the Bible was true after all. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word that is living and active and that reminds us always there is another home. And the end is coming as we know it here, but the end will never come because our story with you, if we know you and love you and have trusted you as our Savior, will never end. We're living in a never-ending story. Help us draw there. Help us help our hearts to reach for there and to long to live part of that never-ending story in the home you're preparing for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.